0: to the Marathon Medic podcast. My name's Amy and I'm a junior doctor and running coach with an interest in sports medicine. This series of the podcast is all about nutrition for exercise and performance. But before we dive into the complex world of nutrition, I thought it would be useful to learn more about a very important topic, disordered eating. So on this episode, I'm lucky to be joined by Dr. Hannah Stoyle. Hannah is a sports psychologist and founder of Optimised Potential a sport and exercise psychology consultancy. Hannah has also recently completed a PhD at University College London, where she focused her research on disordered eating and eating disorders in athletes. Hi, Hannah. Thanks so much for joining me this evening. Hi, Amy. So glad to be here. Great. I'm really excited to to have this chat because it's um, an area that I, I don't know too much about. And I think it's really important to try and raise some awareness. But before we kind of dive into the topic, Would you mind just explaining to all the listeners a little bit about who you are and your research background as well? Because I think you've just finished your PhD. Is that right? I
1: have. I have just finished my PhD. I was at UCL. It was a great place to be. And so my research topic was eating disorders and disordered eating in athletes. Um, And the reason I looked at that is because I'm also a practicing sports psychologist. So I work with England Swimming and the girls at Reading Academy And I do lots of private work as well as part of my private practice of optimized potential. And so I kind of have this split role in which I'm doing research into disordered eating and athletes, but then also practicing sports psychologists where I'm speaking to all types of athletes and performers on a daily basis.
0: Did you find that experience that you've had in clinical practice really helped and supported your, your research?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, for me, in in my practice I do a range of things and I'm not only looking at disordered eating and and I don't work in eating, clinical eating disorders in my private practice because I'm not a clinical psychologist but I do think it's so helpful to really understand the population you're looking at and the way they speak about things and the kind of empathy and understanding you just have from like day-to-day interacting with athletes, bringing that kind of feeling into into research, into the numbers, into the data, I think is a really impactful thing and keeps you motivated kind of on just like a personal research level. It keeps you really kind of focused on wanting to help the people that will be impacted by your research.
0: And is there anything specific from your research and your, and your PhD that you found and, and want to share? Or is that something we'll kind of uh, discuss more as, as the conversation goes on. I think we'll probably
1: come to a bit more as we go, but one of the things that I found really interesting is that, you know, this is, disordered eating is something that affects many types of athletes and it affects all genders. And it's really important to realize that disordered eating doesn't have kind of an, an image. Um, it doesn't have a weight. It doesn't have any of that. And so it's really important just to kind of realize that so many people in like just in daily life and exercises and, you know, elite athletes, the whole gamut, it's it we can all be affected by disordered eating, which is why it's so important to to address it.
0: Would you mind just clarifying uh, what disordered eating is and how that's different from eating disorders? Because actually, that's something I discovered quite recently, and I think it's it's difficult to differentiate uh, what what classifies as disordered eating and what's a diagnosable kind of clinical eating disorder.
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and definitely one that when we speak in kind of lay terms, people like interchange the terms, and they are different. So, starting with. A clinically diagnosable eating disorder. So if you think of a continuum, that would be kind of our most extreme unhealthy end. Um, So that's something like anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder. There are others as well. Um, And those are ones that in the kind of diagnostic manual that we use in psychology and psychiatry to kind of diagnose someone has criteria that are set out. And it kind of, it basically says, if you kind of hit these criteria in terms of and, um, you know, your cognitions and behaviors and weight and shape and, and things like that, then you would kind of qualify for, for getting an anorexia nervosa diagnosis, for example, or binge eating disorder diagnosis. Now, if you don't hit that criteria, so for example, and um, there's, you know, for, for bulimia and binge eating disorder, if you kind of aren't binging and therefore in, in bulimia purging quote unquote enough, you then don't hit the diagnostic criteria. And so you might end up in a situation where you are suffering and you are having a difficult time with with food and related cognitions around your body image and things, you wouldn't get that diagnosis. And there's all sorts of kind of controversy around that, because as you can kind of imagine, you know, then you end up with people not getting the support they might need. But that's also a little bit where disordered eating can start to come in. And so we kind of move down the continuum. If we imagine at the healthy end, we have kind of intuitive eating, healthy eating, then we have disordered eating kind of in the middle and then an eating disorder at the other end of the continuum. Disordered eating It doesn't have a firm definition. It's actually quite a nebulous concept because it's kind of a catch-all term for underlying kind of thoughts, cognitions, behaviors. Issues with body image that have to do with kind of food and kind of food psychopathology. But there's no kind of threshold for, okay, you have disordered eating or you don't. It's very much kind of at the discretion of of that individual and of maybe the person helping that individual. And so, because of that, we end up in a situation where it's really hard to gauge how many people are suffering from disordered eating, how long they've been suffering from it. And there's a lot that we can probably go into that has to do with the normalization of behaviors and thoughts around food. I'm just in like kind of social media and and then kind of just how we speak about food these days. So all that kind of that ramble basically is there's a kind of clinical criteria and that's an eating disorder. And if you don't kind of meet that, you kind of end up in the disordered eating category. But that definition is, is really vast.
0: And I suppose if we're not picking up the people in that disordered eating category, there's obviously a much greater risk that they could then progress on to clinical eating disorder. Would that be the correct way of thinking about it as well?
1: So it's interesting you say that. So it's not a necessary predictor that someone with disordered eating will end up with an eating disorder. Having said that, to be diagnosed with eating disorder, a lot of times someone has been suffering for years quietly and kind of becoming kind of more and more clinically sick, basically. And so they probably started in disordered eating behaviors, and then it it, it kind of went to an extreme that it became clinically diagnosable. But it's not to say that having disordered eating would necessarily predict an eating disorder. And one of the things that we, you know, I think looking at the numbers, you know, the rate of an eating disorder in the general population is kind of one to three percent if we're looking at kind of anorexia and bulimia. Whereas for disordered eating, which again, there's issues with the definition. So it's a really broad range, but we have estimates that are kind of 50% of the lay population or athletes, you know, kind of, I mean, I've seen studies that have quoted upwards of, you know, 60, 70%. I've also seen estimates much lower down and kind of six, 10%. So it's not that everyone transitions into an eating disorder, but looking back, a lot of times you can see their disordered behaviors and when that started.
0: That's really interesting. I, I guess rings true with just, obviously, we, we've all known people that have had difficulties. And whether it's a disordered eating pattern or an eating disorder, it, it causes such distress psychologically. So even if it's not meeting the clinical guideline criteria, it's still um, a huge impact on someone's life.
1: What you've just said there is really key, because I think sometimes we get obsessed with, did they hit a criteria? Is there a certain weight? And actually, there's a wonderful woman named Hope Virgo, who's has a Dump the Scales campaign, because it's all about how oh, if you weren't a low enough weight, you weren't sick enough, you're not getting treatment for an eating disorder. And it's just about realizing that we we have to be treating people before they're really, really ill. Um, And these, these illnesses are really, really dangerous and and they kill. We've recently just, you know, we we hear in the news about people dying from, from anorexia and, and it's horrific. And so I think it's really important that we're at a point where we realize that even if they're not quote unquote sick enough, we need to be helping them anyways, of course.
0: Just kind of going back to disordered eating in sport, are there any better figures for how for how prevalent that is in sport, in the sporting population, whether that's elite athletes or or maybe kind of athletes that aren't competing? Um, is disordered eating prevalent and, and more, more so than in the general public?
1: So again, I'm always conscious of not trying to draw like really swooping conclusions because when we say an athlete, you know, are we talking somewhere from a ballerina to a rugby player to a footballer to a table tennis player, you know, with such a huge range? Um, what we do know, and also because the definition. Of disordered eating isn't firm. It's important just to realize that it's really hard to capture this. So, again, we're kind of somewhere around, we think maybe a third of male athletes are suffering from disordered eating and then you know upwards to like a half of, of female athletes, but there's a huge kind of range and debate there. One of the things that we do know is that different types of sports seem to lend themselves slightly more to a, those participants being more susceptible to a disordered eating. I'm going to put a big caveat on this in a moment, but what we know is that those in kind of lean sports or anti-gravitational sports or aesthetic sports, those in which it's advantageous, to have a lean physique, as you can imagine, you don't kind of see a higher rate of disordered eating in those sports. Uh, and that's for, for male and females. Um, what I will caveat by saying, though, is are we only looking at going, well, restriction is kind of our measure of disordered eating? What about Binging. What about the underlying cognitions? Is is someone who wants to gain weight for their sport? Are we okay with that? You know, if, I, I kind of sometimes wonder about the questions we're asking athletes when we're measuring these things. And that's a huge amount of my research has been on: are we really measuring what we think we're measuring um, in terms of disordered eating in athletes? Because if we're using kind of clinical scales of going, are you restricting? Are you restricting? That's maybe only one element of disordered eating and it's not capturing binging um, or purging and other things as well. Yes, we know a little bit more about what's happening in athletes and we can know that there are certain sports where we need to be all the more kind of careful and cognizant of the kind of weight requirements in those sports. But I think we could be only seeing half the picture.
0: You've touched on quite a few things there that contribute to uh, increased susceptibility to disordered eating. So you mentioned a lean physique, um, and I, I've read things about sports where you, you're not wearing very uh, much clothing. So obviously more of your body's on show and that can lend itself. I was just wondering if there were any other areas of, of sports that you'd kind of identified as increasing the, the pressures maybe on on the athletes and increasing their, their likelihood of developing disordered eating.
1: Yeah. So again, it is those so sports like anti-gravitational sports. If you imagine like going up a hill on a bike, right, you know, you kind of want to be carrying the least amount of mass possible. Um, And that's kind of the physics of it. And so that, you know, that's where we start to get into this difficult situation of, you know, how do we help someone perform at their best as an athlete, but also has a really healthy relationship with their body and with food. Um, Again, the weight class sports as well. So mixed martial arts or lightweight rowing, one where you have to hit a certain weight to compete. there There's a huge amount of restriction of food intake that happens there. Um, and we also know that other things in athletes lives that impact, you know, they're not just athletes. And I think that's, again, this is a huge part of what my thesis was on for my PhD. We're dealing with human beings and not just performing monkeys. And it's really important to realize that because I think we get kind of fixated on, well, what sport are they doing? Does that go into it? It's really a question of, well, what kind of societal pressures are on someone who then is also an athlete? So like a swimmer, for example, if you think, okay, I say to you, a male swimmer a lot of times people are like oh yeah that's six pack and it's like well that's a huge amount of pressure on actually a male athlete who is doing a water-based sport where muscle weighs more than fat and you actually don't want too much muscle you, you would think there's a there's a there's a ratio there that's about that you need to get and 20 years ago we didn't see six packs on swimmers in the same way we see them now, there's been kind of an increase of pressure for them to kind of fit the societal ideal of what we think an athlete should look like. And so the pressure that I think comes from the media and from society, including, you know, all of us talking about it, we kind of decide what athletes should look like. And we don't really have an acceptance of different body shapes, um, just like we don't kind of in the quote-unquote normal world, but we also don't in the athlete world really at all. We really expect people to look as if they're they're all kind of these you know Greek gods basically, and we don't really allow for any wiggle room. And I think that can be also really harmful, especially if we have social media now, kind of constantly telling us, and then also like sponsorship deals depend on social media. So all of that wrapped together, to me, is what kind of increases our susceptibility. Um, towards disordered eating in athletes.
0: I think we focused a, a lot on elite sports and elite athletes. Have you noticed similar patterns in, say, you know, the, the park run runner, the person that's just doing gentle exercise each week, and whether those same concepts kind of feed in and are increasing the risk of disordered eating?
1: Yeah, so that's a really good question. So my research is very much on athletes rather than kind of exercisers. So I'm going to say that with that kind of note around it. Um, But I think one of the things that we know is if we really identify as an athlete, an exerciser, a runner, you know, if we're kind of like, oh, that's part of who I am we can sometimes then internalize, like, well, if I'm a runner, whether that's a park run or, you know, you've you've qualified for some of the best marathons in the world, then you start to go, I should look a certain way. I should should start to be something that matches that identity physically as well. Because a lot of times we end up kind of comparing physical attributes with kind of what that means in terms of performance, even if that's park run performance or, you know, an Olympic performance. So that's, I think, part of it. So yes, we are seeing, you know, kind of similar things can happen if you, kind of take exercise as something that you know is a part of you and you're proud of, that's a great thing, obviously, but also it can feed into some of the issues we've discussed. The other element is that, you know, I found in some of my research, and, and this has come out in other work, is that top, 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 athletes do end up with more support than what I would call our serious yet aspiring athletes. And so I think there's that kind of middle group who are very good at what they do and take it very seriously. They are aspiring for great height, and they have a huge part of their identity as being that athlete, but they aren't able to access the same kind Kind of support, whether it's from me as a sports psychologist or nutrition support, whatever it is, so they end up dropping weight to reach a new marathon time. And the issue with that is that a lot of times runners will report that it worked. You know, and so the initial weight loss might give them that new PB, but it's a dangerous slippery slope, obviously, into hurting their bodies and their mental health as well, if they're to lose more weight, if they're going to continue on this disordered disord- eating behavior kind of pattern. And so that's one of the the big issues that we find is that people oftentimes when they're aspiring for, for the next level will kind of resort to different types of dieting behaviors that are unhealthy because they don't know really what is healthy and where they're supposed to turn to and how to get faster.
0: And I suppose, as you said, with less support around this, there's, there's less people that are going to know that around them as well, and therefore pick up these changes and how it will be impacting not only their health, but their performance and these goals that they're hoping to achieve. Exactly. I wanted to actually touch on something that you just mentioned about the relationship between performance and weight, because I suppose in quite a lot of sports, if you are dropping your weight, initially, you are going to see those performance gains. Is that almost a positive uh, feedback loop in that it encourages people to lose more weight or do they does their performance tend to drop off quite quickly I guess that's quite a difficult question because it's sport dependent but I was just wondering if you had any any thoughts around that
1: yeah it's a really good question of course it is sport dependent depends on the person what weight they started at and all these things but the point still stands that the initial positive feedback loop is there It's the same feedback loop that's also in, you know, you lose a bit of weight and you go to a a barbecue and friends go, oh, you look great. And you kind of go, oh, this is a good thing that I have lost weight. And this is one of the reasons why it's so important that we actually don't really ever comment on people's weight or shape. But even if we're trying to be nice, you know, it's really, it can just feed back into that positive reinforcement of this is a good thing. I should keep doing this. And so that happens with sporting performance as well. And they kind of go, oh, this is working. And sometimes people are able to realize, okay, I shouldn't lose more weight. I need to stop there. But A lot of times they can't because it's, you know, our brains, especially a starved brain is not that smart. It's really hard for our brains to kind of make sense of it. And one of the massive issues is that any food restriction leads to binging. So if you ever feel like you're someone who kind of wants to stop binging and you're struggling with with what you would consider a binge, then we need to stop restriction. That's how we stop a binge, you know? And so a lot of times what happens is people will kind of start restricting, drop a bit of weight, do better. And then inevitably, because evolutionarily, our brains cannot distinguish between a diet and we're entering a mass famine. There's, there's no way for our brains to know that. And one of the things that we need to know about diet culture is that it peddles this idea that somehow willpower will overcome. You can, you can use willpower to like restrict forever. You can't. You cannot undo millennia of evolution with willpower. That's a silly thing. And so what we have to realize is not about willpower. It's about feeding our bodies and our brains in a way that they need it. And we need to also feed the soul. I always talk about feeding the bodies and the soul because it's all about finding that balance in your life. And so if you are restricting getting that positive feedback loop, you will end up binging. And then the guilt associated with a binge... Sometimes then, again, leads back to restriction. And so you can see very quickly how someone could spiral into disordered eating and their weight may not change. So again, remembering it's not kind of connected too much to weight, but they could very quickly get into the cognitions, the thought patterns that underpin disordered eating behaviours.
0: Obviously, one of the things we've spoken about is, is weight and it's not just about weight. But I think uh, an important part of all of this is recognizing the signs that somebody might be either beginning to go down a, a path where their eating uh, patterns are becoming disordered, or they're at least having some cognitive changes around their food behaviors. What are the other signs that we could look out for, as I guess clinicians, friends, coaches, whether that's elite level coaches or just someone that you're kind of training with on the weekends? Um, what are the other features that we could maybe be looking out for?
1: Yeah. So. This is going to be a tricky one because a lot of times we feel kind of funny about talking about our mental health in general, I guess I would say. It's something that we're not great at speaking about on a day-to-day basis. So looking for things, you know, you, you can look for weight loss. I, I, we can't ignore that, but it shouldn't be the only sign that we're looking for. To me, it's all about kind of rigidity. If we're kind of looking for someone who... You know, let's say, for example, lunch is normally at noon, and you know, let's say the team was going to go and they were going to have they're going to have Pret. Let's go with Pret. They're going to have Pret, and it's going to be at noon. It's a team trip. That's what we're going for. Or everyone's out at a park run, and afterwards it's going to be catered by whoever, and it's happening at noon. And then something happens to the schedule, buses change, whatever. You know, actually, we are going to eat at eleven a.m. So sorry, everyone. The Pret's closed. The catering company canceled. We're all having McDonald's. Life happens. You know, this is what we're having. And if someone can't shift and go, oh, well, oh, well, <laughs> that's kind of something we're looking for. If they're so rigid in the way they're thinking about food, and their diet. And so that's something I always say is something that we can kind of go, oh, interesting. How come that's causing you so much worry and so much panic? And the same goes for kind of the question about the, I feel fat comments or uh, the guilt. Oh, I'm so bad for having eaten that. Unless you have killed somebody, you are not bad for eating a cookie. You know, you can eat, eat the chocolate cake, their guilt does not belong in the food and food is neither good nor bad. It's all just food. And so the comments and the language around that of, oh, well, I, I ate so much over the weekend. I have to just not, I really have to cut back today. Just kind of asking around those things. Those things can be little indications of just sort of eating kind of, just like thoughts running through someone's head. Eating in secret as well, again, is something that, you know, might, if you kind of live with someone, um, maybe a housemate, you can sometimes it's easier to notice if you live with someone, but kind of secret eating again is something that we look out for. Then ask about it. You know, every kind of, I feel fat. I don't like my body comment is really, it's not about that. It's about whatever else is underlying that. So just kind of saying, Hey, okay. You know, what's going on for you today? Um, And just kind of checking in with someone. And it's really important to realize that you're not going to give someone an eating disorder by checking in. So that's a question I get a lot by coaches. Like I just didn't want to talk about it. You can talk about it in the same way. You can't give someone depression by mentioning the idea that depression exists it's the same with an eating disorder. You know, you, you're not going to give someone an eating disorder by kind of asking, are you okay? You know, what's going on? I'm concerned about you. So just addressing the topic gently and with compassion and remembering kind of most crucially that disordered eating and eating disorders are not choices that someone is making. No one has chosen this. And so this is an illness and this is something that, you know, it's not, they, they can't just eat. <laughs> they can't just be okay with their bodies. Unfortunately, if it was that simple, it would, it would be a great thing, but it's not. And so it's really important that we come at it with the same compassion we would give any other physical or mental illness
0: absolutely and you mentioned there a few really nice phrases I was just wondering if you had a few lines that you'd kind of worked on over the years which you would recommend people to maybe use if they have noticed some of these signs but they're really stressed about bringing it up because it is quite a difficult thing I think whether you've got a professional or a personal relationship it could be something that you might be worried would distance that person from you or they then might become more secretive in in the things that they're doing so what are your kind of go-to go-to phrases for bringing this up
1: So there's a few tips. So one is um, using I statements. So I'm feeling rather than you've done something. So I'm feeling concerned. I'm feeling kind of aware that, you know, last night we went to dinner and I was really aware that the tension was was there around food. It was kind of, we were having that meal together. I'm really concerned about that. So focusing on I statements and not blaming someone is kind of a good blanket place to start. Um, but also so it's something that actually Swim England, where I work and British Swimming as well have spoken about in terms of all mental health and how to address it, is It's called the Ask Twice campaign. It's a really simple campaign, but I quite like it. So Ask Twice just means kind of saying, are you okay? Are you sure? It's not allowing that kind of first like, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Okay. And walking away, it's going, are you okay? Are you sure? And sometimes if someone's just kind of like really upset about like what the food's going on, the, their situation looking in the mirror, Ask them to take a deep breath and kind of say, yeah, okay, you sure? Do you want to just tell me what's kind of going on in your life right now? And sometimes just starting there can be really, really helpful. What I'll also say is I've learned that with younger people, if we're kind of, you know, dealing with our adolescence and things like that, Asking about their friends and kind of saying, are any of your friends suffering with kind of how they're kind of approaching food and their bodies lately, that can actually be a really nice window into maybe what they're kind of seeing day to day that they either might be upset for their friends or they're also engaging in it as well. And so just kind of realizing like, are people just suffering around it and talking about it as though, you know, keeping it normal, keeping it normalized in terms of, you know, mental health is something we want to normalize, but also going, it's your health. I care about you. And just really making sure the language is around, boy, this is not your fault. I see your suffering. What can I be doing to help you in this moment? That's kind of where I'd go with that.
0: I really like that. That's very helpful, especially I think the the ask twice uh, idea is really nice because I think we often ask people, oh, how are you? And we almost even stop for that response. And our automatic response is fine. How are you? And you kind of move on. And I think asking twice does bring it home that it is you genuinely asking and genuinely caring about how they yeah. are. So Yeah,
1: and I, I, I actually, I'm going to add to that as well. Something I've learned in COVID, and this is anecdotal and you know the, the plural of anecdote is not data, but this is something I've learned actually is that when I'm logging on to a call with a young person who I'm working with and anyone in general, is I've tried really hard to my first initial hello to go, hey, hello. Can you hear me okay? Can you see me okay? I start with that question rather than going, hey, how are you? Because then we've asked that question as if it doesn't matter. And so I save the how are you until we're focused and talking about it. Now I'm a psychologist, so of course that's what we're going to talk about, but I actually think it's quite a good strategy in general if you're just checking in with anyone, not to kind of use, hey, how are you? You're all right as a throwaway greeting and kind of save it for a special moment because we do care about the answer. So that's also something I've been working on.
0: That's a really, really good point. And as, as you said, we almost use how are you as a hello now. It's almost our approach to, to anyone that we're meeting, whether it's the first time or an old friend. Um, and we don't often get the get the truthful answer. If there is a, a coach or a friend or an athlete listening and they wanted to find out more about this area, would you have any particular resources that you find Really useful i was actually going to go on and ask you about social media but i suppose first of all are there any positive social media accounts that you would recommend or online resources that people could find out more about this topic
1: yeah absolutely so the first thing is to say is that the beat charity b-e-a-t um, in the uk is a great charity a great resource for eating disorders they have a helpline um, they have all sorts of kind of support information support groups um they're a great resource so beat is excellent a fantastic researcher named Carolyn Plateau at Loughborough has actually designed a disordered eating awareness course for coaches. Um, so that's the Loughborough University. Um, I don't. I think that course is about fifty pounds. I can't remember exactly. Um, but that's a really great course if you're interested in this topic, kind of finding out a bit more about it. If you want a bit more kind of formal CPD, there are also a lot. There are a lot of great um, Instagram um, accounts, and I and Instagram in particular is something that, that's kind of the platform I'm most familiar with, if I'm honest. Um, and so I actually will probably, I can send you through a link if you want to put some in the description um, of, of a bunch of them. And what we're really looking for is people who are promoting kind of intuitive eating, health at every size. Basically, if someone's posting a before and after photo, you don't want to be following them. <laughs> it's usually my rule of thumb. Um, so no before and after photos. I'm not posting kind of what they eat in a day because everybody is different. Everything is different. Um, and just realizing anyone who kind of writes about good food bad food if you're if you're craving chocolate cake i don't know eat an almond no 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 eat eat some chocolate cake you know and so any those kind of things you're looking for and basically you know if, someone, if following someone makes you feel upset for whatever reason unfollow them you know it's it's basically that so but i'll send through a kind of a nice list so you can link those down below of, of any kind of some nice accounts that i've found over the years
0: that would be great and i think all of those points you made they're really obvious but actually doing them is a whole different thing and actually sitting down and thinking <laughs> what am i following and what am i kind of taking into my brain subconsciously Absolutely. and actually thinking about how it's impacting you is really important um yeah. i had one final question which is actually a little bit on the flip side of everything we discussed do you know much about or is there much evidence surrounding the positive impacts that sport and exercise has on eating. I, th- I think if you're doing lots of exercise, maybe food can be seen as a, a fuel that's making you stronger, making you achieve something that's benefit- beneficial for your mental health. So I was just wondering if you had any comments around that.
1: Yeah, and it's a really important one. You know, obviously I spend my life not looking at that, but yes, so actually, especially doing some of our team sports, the general kind of mental health benefits of doing sport is huge. So kind of knowing that, it's a positive kind of mental health benefit to be part of a sport, part of a team, part of a community, that's great. And same as doing exercise, the endorphins that come from that is amazing. So that definitely does help. Um, and you know, there is kind of conversation about the energy expenditure that, of course, sport has has helped many people realize that, you know, oh, they need more food. So I'm going to have a better relationship with food because I want to fuel my endeavors. I want to fuel my passion. Um, and so definitely exists out there. I think for me, I just obviously don't spend too much time looking at it, but there are of course many benefits to to doing exercise and doing sport.
0: Great. Thank you so much. Is there any final comments or um, kind of take home messages that you wanted to share?
1: I think it's just important to remember. I mean, I've I've said this, but I I want to kind of hit home that, you know, disordered eating, eating disorders are not choices that anyone makes. So when we're kind of talking about that, we just want to do it with compassion. Um, And it's all about realizing that anyone can be suffering from disordered eating. And so realizing that, you know, we're not looking just for, we're not looking for just white people. We're not looking for just white females. We're, it's really important to realize anyone can be impacted by this. And the language that we use around food and body image is hugely impactful. So, you know, when we go back to work in person at any point and, and things like that, and it just kind of, you know, not sitting down at lunch on Monday and going, oh, was so bad over the weekends. I'm having a salad today. Those things are really hard for some people to hear. So just watching your language around it and making sure that you are feeding your body feeding the soul and encouraging everyone around you to do the same.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for your, for your time and a really interesting chat. So hopefully that, that helped everyone listening. Um, and as you said, I'll put those uh, positive accounts at the end so that people can go and follow them as well. Perfect. Thank you, Amy. Thank you for having me. I hope that was a useful episode for everybody listening. And if you feel that you've been affected by anything we've discussed or you simply want to find out more about this topic – then BEAT is the UK's eating disorder charity and their website can be found at beatseatingdisorders.org.uk. If you want to hear more from Hannah, then you can find her on Twitter by searching H. Stoyle or on Instagram at optimise underscore potential. Some of the Instagram accounts that Hannah recommended checking out include Positively Present, Anna Sweeney, Georgie Buckley underscore dietitian, Laura Thomas PhD, ladies who launch dr christina and the eating disorder therapist many thanks for listening to the episode and i'll be back soon with episodes on immunonutrition gut health hydration and more you can find me on instagram by searching marathon medic or by visiting marathonmedic.com thanks so much for listening